Hello everyone, and welcome to Discussions and Dragons, the podcast where my brother and I take an in-depth look at the world of 5e and all things Dungeons and Dragons. Opening and closing music credit to Will Savino at patreon.com slash musicd20. I'm Jaren. And I'm Britton. And this week, we are continuing our serialized look at the new source book for 5th edition titled Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Tasha's has introduced a new and optional rules for character creation, as well as a ton of new subclasses for players to choose from. This week, we're going to continue and focus on the cleric and druid classes and everything that Tasha's has to offer them. So, Britton, why don't you go ahead and get started and let us know what is new and exciting with clerics? Yes, so... Finally, I am so excited to talk about the clerics in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Um, generally, I think that I'm known as the resident cleric player around my Sunday D&D table, or as it were, the socially distanced D&D tables. So I was really, really excited to see that clerics were going to be having some exciting new features and subclasses. So getting right into it with the optional class features are the additional class spells. Um, just like last week, how Jaren, you talked about the bard classes, um, I'm going to be talking about the new cleric spells that they have offered to them, and we only have two that are new, so I'm just going to be talking about the ones that are in Tasha's, uh, in addition to the ones that are offered in Player's Handbook and Xanathar's. Um, so the first one that they get is a third level spell called Spirit Shroud. It is a bonus action to cast, it is concentration, and the self is the range. Um, so what this does is any attack that you make deals an additional 1d8 radiant, cold, or necrotic damage to a creature within 10 feet of you. Now here's the kicker. So if that damage is taken by a creature, that creature may not regain hit points until the start of your next turn. So I think that's really cool, especially if your clerics are fighting, you know, undead or vampires or werewolves, anything with regeneration. I think being able to halt that regeneration is really awesome. And any creature that starts its turn within 10 feet of you has its speed reduced by 10 feet. And really for me, I think this is just really fun for clerics because it's offering an augmentation to damage that isn't just on weapon attacks. And, you know, if you throw yourself into battle and you want to power up one of your cantrips or cast Inflict Wounds, you get a bump in damage and that additional effect of reducing their regeneration. Oh, that's very cool. So is this spell an, an ongoing effect sort of a thing? Yeah. So because it's concentration, just anytime you attack a creature, they're not going to be able to regain hit points if they take that damage until your next turn. So realistically, you could keep that going so that you're throwing your cleric in to make sure that they don't regain hit points. And it's like I said, it's any time that you do damage. So say you cast your bonus action to do something that has damage or you use your spiritual weapon. That's you doing an attack. So it's the 1d8 on that. And hey, you want to throw a cantrip in there as an action. You'll also get the damage boost to your cantrip. That's really strong. I like that. Yeah, I, I really like it too. Um, and moving right into the second spell that they get is called Summon Celestial. So it's a fifth level spell, one action to cast, concentration up to an hour, and a 90 foot range. So you summon a celestial spirit ally to follow your verbal commands in or out of combat. And the stat block is provided for the player in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Finally, a summoning spell that does not require the DM to do all of the work. Well, as a DM, I'm very excited for these new summon spells. <laughs> I'll tell you that. 
Yeah, honestly, we could do an entire episode just about the new summoning spells because of how much better they are than all of these conjure spells. They really should just take conjure whatever, throw it out the window, and just use these summoning spells. All around, this is just a better and more balanced version of conjure celestial in in my opinion um because as you cast the spell with slots higher than fifth the thing that you summon there i think there's celestial fiend um shadow it's like shadow spawn um, as you cast this with slots higher than fifth the creature that is summoned just gets incrementally more powerful rather than i think it was like if you cast this with a ninth level spell slot, you can summon a CR5 instead of a CR4. Like, that's cool because you get, you know, some sort of option. But at the same time, I would rather just have one thing that you summon. It gets more powerful as you level up your spell. Yeah, and I, I like the simplicity and the consistency and reliability of these new summon spells. Um, and we'll get into it a little bit when we get into uh, Druid as well, but... Um... You know, I'm sure that you as the, the player are excited both to be able to summon something as a cleric, but also have something that you can rely on that's a specific stat block. It's going to be the same every time, and you can, can really rely on that. Yeah, and you also don't have to have, you know, a couple cards sitting out, or you got your laptop up, or whatever monster manual you're flipping through, trying to find your CR that you have to try to summon, and, well, hopefully it has the things that I want, and, you know, it's, it like you said, it's consistent, it's reliable... So moving from those additional class spells goes into the new optional channel divinity feature, which is called Harness Divine Power. You can expend one of your uses of channel divinity to regain one spell slot, of which can be no higher than half your proficiency bonus. Now, this was kind of interesting to me when I read this, because um, I generally try to think of things at max range or max efficiency of power or what have you, what can you do with this? So... At 20th level, you get a plus six proficiency bonus, rounded half down, that's three. So at the very max, at a 20th level caster, you can use your channel divinity to regain a third level spell slot. Um, and I can imagine that, I guess, this feature is included for players that really enjoy casting all of their spells throughout the day um, and still having the option to do one more or two more or three more. Um, as you level up, you get more uses of your channel divinity. Um, so I guess it's... It's good for them. Honestly, I've, I've always wanted a unifying channel divinity feature for clerics that wasn't just turn or destroy undead, because that can be really limiting to a party or to any spellcaster, really, that wants to use necromancy to raise the dead. I think, you know, for clerics, in my opinion, it's really reductive and kind of narratively boring to say that all clerics are just bestowed the holy power to destroy the undead. Like, what if a cleric worships a god of undeath? Or if your cleric has an affinity for zombies, um, or just your party is full of necromancers, a, a major <laughs> right. part of their kit is wasted. Right, yeah. Then for me, I, I thought of the wizard's first level arcane recovery. It's just kind of like a weaker version of this. So all around, it's, it's not a perfect fit for a unifying channel divinity feature, but it is better than nothing because you can narratively see why maybe your cleric's choosing this versus turn slash destroy undead all right interesting interesting yeah and, and speaking of versatility we're moving into our fourth level feature which is cantrip versatility uh whenever you reach fourth level and any level that you can do an ability score improvement you can swap out a cantrip that you know with another cantrip from the cleric spell list and as we talked about in the bard episode 
effectively all spellcasters are going to get a sort of quote-unquote versatility option. I think it was called like bardic versatility. Um, I'm sure like I think the warlocks is like eldritch versatility. Um, every single spellcaster is going to get a versatility option, which is just, in my opinion, a much needed addition. Yeah, it gives everybody some flexibility every time you, uh, you know, in- increase at that fourth level and increase your stats. You just get a little bit of options to, you know, choose something different based on the situation that you're in. Yeah, and I think flexibility and choice are at the heart of Tasha's, and we'll we'll see more as we keep going on. And an example of this is the cleric's eighth level feature, which is Blessed Strikes, and that would replace either their potent cantrip or divine or potent spellcasting and divine strike feature. It would replace that. So what this is is it allows you to deal one d eight radiant damage once per turn on a weapon attack or a cantrip. And the only critique that I have of this feature is that I think that it shouldn't just be radiant damage that's applied. It should be, you know, radiant damage or necrotic damage based on the god that you serve. But other than that, I think it's a very useful optional feature, being able to decide where your damage is going to be coming from. Is it going to be coming from cantrips or your uh, your weapon attacks or spell attacks? It can come, the additional blessed holy damage will come from any of those sources of damage. I get the impression you really want to see a necromantic cleric. I do. I absolutely <laughs> do. All I want is a zombie raisin, you know, can't we have a cleric of Vecna? Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. It's, it's time. It, it's it's 2020, this hellish year. Can we not have a hellish cleric? <laughs> Agreed. So, speaking of hellish clerics, we're going to move right into their divine domains. Um, And as a disclaimer, I would like to say that I will be talking about the channel divinity feature of that subclass first, because I think that channel divinity is at the heart of the subclass, and I just really want to talk about it first, and they they always excite me. That's what I look for first when I go into a new divine domain. Uh, So the first one that they have here is called the order domain. And this domain focuses on laws and logic and just societies. Um, The clerics of this domain seem to be about promoting lawful behavior and denouncing and breaking the lawless. When I read some of the descriptions of this uh, divine domain, I had heavy, mad paladin vibes. Yeah, I can certainly see that, yeah. Yeah. So with their channel divinity feature is called Order's Demand. And each creature that you choose within a 30-foot uh, radius sphere that you can that can see or hear you must succeed on a wisdom saving throw or be charmed by you until the end of your next turn, or if they take damage. And additionally, you can also make them drop their weapons as a part of this action. Uh, so immediately I'm thinking about in combat, insanely useful and tactical feature to optimally, depending on your positioning, be able to disarm an entire team of people around you. And again, with the paladin, I think that using the will-bending abilities are left up to the bard and the paladin. So I think this is a fun flavor that clerics don't often get to have. Um, the their, This mass charm kind of reminds me of the glamour, bar, glamour bard from Xanathar's. Uh, so again, I, I think this is a fun flavor that they don't often get to see as a, as like a voice of authority to make people drop their weapons and listen to them. That's really cool. Yeah, that could be very useful in the middle of combat or even as um, a role-playing 
uh, sort of uh, feature where you're going to a town that you're not really known in um, and you can just use that to kind of gain some reputation and gain uh, some acclaim, get the attention of the crowd and um, just charm a whole crowd of people. Yeah, and I think if you know if you're coming up on people that are hostile towards you, um, you could even use this to discourage combat altogether. Make them drop their weapons, do an intimidation check. If it's high enough, you might be able to just completely discourage combat and skirt out of that situation. High risk, high reward. If you fail, it's probably not going to be a fun time. Right. Yeah, not at all. Uh, and, you know, speaking of being the voice of authority, that is the title of the first level feature that you get. Um, so if you target an ally with a first level spell or higher, they can use their reaction to immediately make an attack against another creature that you can see. So clerics are generally known for supporting their allies and buffing them um, or helping them by debuffing, you know, an, an enemy. And I think that this feature is proof enough. Um, it's a fun feature that allows players to creatively cast buffing spells and not feel about, feel bad about healing versus dealing damage. I know sometimes I, even as a player, if it's like, all right, well, this thing that I'm fighting, I could either just try to kill it now or revive the person that's right in front of it, or do I wait for them to get downed and then go attack it? It's This is a good way of not feeling bad about choosing a buffing or a healing spell instead. Um, being able to heal the downed ranger and then being able to use their reaction to shoot an oncoming enemy or pumping up your barbarian before they hit with an all-out attack, being able to buff and deal damage on the same term is so effective. I'm imagining you just resurrecting, restoring hit points to a downed ally, and they immediately just fire off an arrow. It's a very funny image in my head. Yeah, or they, <laughs> a, you know, like a barbarian or whatever, and they, they're, they're down on the ground, and you go down, and you touch them with your cure wounds, and they just come up with an uppercut and sock the person right in the face for downing right. them in the first place. Go from unconscious to I would like to rage. Exactly. <laughs> and this actually flows right into their sixth level feature called Embodiment of the Law. When you cast an enchantment spell of first level or higher, you may change the casting time to one bonus action, given that the original casting time was one action, and you can do this a number of times equal to your wisdom modifier. Now, that is kind of a hard boundary. You know, there aren't really more than a handful of spells that fit the crit criteria of enchantment one action. Um, but the more important ones are Bane, Bless, Command, and Hold Person. So this is an interesting feature because this is encouraging two spell casts per turn, and one of those being Crowd Control, or CC. So, for instance, being able to cast a fourth level Hold Person on clumped enemies, and then casting the cantrip Word of Radiance afterwards to deal, to deal 2d6 damage to all of them, is a really powerful combination. Offering, you know, CC and damage in the same turn is tremendous in regards to helping your team. Yeah, and that that specific type of scenario um, just, I think that really plays into the theme of this specific uh, cleric's order, uh, this domain, I mean, um, and especially with the name of this feature, the embodiment of the law, I think that uh, fits really nicely. Yeah, it's it's you're thinking tactically. You're kind of giving orders um, as a as a tactician, you know, or you bless your ally. That gives them the plus D four. You're targeting them with a spell. They can immediately make a ranged attack or an attack with their reaction, and you can still throw your cantrip out there. 
it's it's more about that, which I think is really cool. Um, so moving into the Divine Strike, which is the eighth level feature that all clerics get, um, you know, previously possibly replaced with the Blessed Strikes feature. You know, you're going to be doing the 1d8 psychic damage when you hit a creature with a weapon attack. And that's increased to 2d8 at level 14. You know, this feature is fitting. Psychic damage makes sense for the subclass. And it would track that you're making a good amount of weapon attacks with this subclass. Especially if you're throwing yourself in there in the middle of everything. Yeah, it's a little bit of a damage boost. Yeah. Nothing too crazy. It's not something that we haven't seen before. Um... So now moving on to the 17th level feature, it is called Order's Wrath. So this is the culmination of being an embodiment of the law and having that voice of authority to really decide how tactically these battles are going to happen. When you deal damage to a creature with your Divine Strike, you may apply a curse to that creature. Cursed creatures will take an additional 2d8 psychic damage the next time it's hit by an attack. And this can be used once per turn. So... Initially, the feature was a little disappointing. You know, for a high-end cleric feature, 2d8 psychic damage really isn't that impressive, especially when you're fighting things that are at 17th level. 2d8 psychic damage is kind of a scratch. When, you know, I think you and I maybe had had a conversation outside of this episode and I had thought about it a little bit more, being able to do 2d8 once per turn is still awesome. You know, how, depending on how many people you have on your team... That could be five people. That's 10d8 per round. That's quite a bit of damage. I think this will start to add up. Yeah. Yeah. And it is uh, per divine strike, I suppose. I wonder if you can add multiple ones of those. Can you use your divine strike multiple times, or is it just uh, once per use? It's um, once per turn you can use your divine strike. Gotcha. But still being able to have that recurring damage is... Uh, That's going to start to add up. Yeah. I mean, looking at it in in terms of as long as you're able to use your reaction, get attacks in and things like that, because you can use your reaction, still get hit. hit. Well, actually, you know what? No, now that I think about it, I don't I don't think that 10d8 would even work because I think that you it can be used once per turn and you only really get if max range like two attacks per round, you have your attack and then a reaction and since it's not your turn, you could apply the the Divine Strike on there. So really, you're only getting 4d8. So I guess upside, downside, it's you know, additional damage is nice. But I think that only 4d8 at a 17th level feature is kind of disappointing. Um, like, for example, Life Domain Clerics, they're able to always restore the maximum number of hit points with a healing spell that they cast. That is their 17th level feature. I think it's called like Supreme Healer, um, and this is more on brand for the Life Domain Cleric, and I think a bump in damage is not really an order thing to me. I think that maybe a possible alternative to this order feature, if they wanted to still move forward with a curse, because I think curses can be fun, would that be maybe the creature affected by the Divine Strike damage has disadvantage on any saving throw against an enchantment spell that the cleric cast on them, further imprisoning the target? You know, we we talked about how in Tasha's, these new subclasses are really building upon the last thing and making sure that this subclass feels thematically built on top of each other, or on top of itself. This doesn't feel like a, a crown sitting on top of 
or like a cherry on top of the cake. It just seems like here's some more damage. Yeah, and before we move on, I'm gonna agree with you there. I, I I've I've had to reread this uh, feature multiple times because it was a bit confusing, and I think the idea is that it's supposed to work in conjunction with the previous features. Um, but still, it seems like there's really no way to get around it being simply, hey, the next time an ally hits that creature that you just hit, they take an additional 2d8. And I don't see how that's a very exciting thing at 17th level. Yeah, not a bit, unfortunately. But overall, you know, I think this subclass is pretty unique in their combat style. The, the features that promote both multi-spell casting and also a good amount of martial activity in the turn. And I think that the strongest thing... I guess for me that this subclass has to offer is the ability to engage CC and deal damage on the same turn. Um, just, you know, unfortunately I think the class kind of falls flat when it comes to their highest level feature. Well, that's all right. Maybe it's a sleeper. We don't quite see how good it is yet. Yeah. Maybe, maybe this is the secret, like amazing OP meta game breaking. <laughs> I'd love to see it. I, I really would. Yeah. Prove us wrong. Prove us wrong. Yeah. So moving into the next divine domain is the peace domain. So this is, if there's one word that could describe the peace domain clerics, it's diplomacy. You know, clerics of this domain are focused on the peaceful bonds between people and nation and fostering relationships and building people up. And I think being able to be that diplomat is exemplified by their channel divinity feature, which is called balm of peace. So as an action, you can move up to your speed without provoking opportunity attacks. And when you move within five feet of any other creature during this action, you may restore 2d6 plus your wisdom mod worth of hit points. And they can get this benefit only once per this action. So unlike some other channel divinity features, like the, the previous one, this one really only has a combat or post-combat utility for me. You know, restoring hit points is only clutch when you're in combat but being able to move without opportunity attacks is already great but then being able to basically infinitely cast a better version of a level one cure wounds on potentially your entire team in one action is incredible yeah that's really nice it's uh you're you're the roving um med kit yeah you are sonic with an epipen <laughs> yes exactly and, you know, in my opinion, this is one of the most useful channel divinity features that I've seen from clerics bar none. Healing is already massively important in combat, uh, especially in clutch res moments. Yeah, this one will be used quite a bit, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think this one and their level one feature, Emboldening Bond, will also be used quite a bit. Uh, as an action, you create a magical bond between a number of creatures equal to your proficiency bonus for 10 minutes. While within 30 feet of any one of them, those creatures can add a d4 to an attack, check, or saving throw once per turn. Um, you can do this the number of times equal to your proficiency bonus per long rest. Now, spoiler alert, this is where this class starts to build. So you will see as I, as I talk about the features in this class... This all boils down to your level one feature being the foundation on which you thematically and stylistically build a subclass. So, again, with a feature replacing a spell, but improving upon it. So this level one emboldening bond, it is like a combination of guidance and bless, but it doesn't require concentration 
and it is on any attack check or saving throw. I really, I have nothing negative to say. I think all around is just a great feature. Being able to bond people together and they can move together as a group and still 30 feet on a battle map is still really, really far apart. That's quite good, too, because this effect seems like it continues, right? It's not simply like the Guidance Cantrip where you just use it once and it's done. It seems like as long as you stay within that range, they just keep getting to do this because you're bonded. Yeah, and it's while within 30 feet of any of them. So say I'm standing here, I've got somebody 25 feet away, and they've got somebody 25 feet away from them. We are all three still covered because we are within 30 feet of at least one other person. Yeah. So being oh. spread out like that and having those bonuses, super nice. Yeah, and it looks like this lasts for, what, 10 minutes? Yes, 10 minutes. And being able to do it a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, you can do that six times per long rest at you know, level 20. But we're not there yet. We are only at level six with the protective <laughs> bond, which, again, building off of your emboldening bond, now this is protective bond. Uh, so when a creature is affected by your emboldening bond and they are about to take damage, another creature affected within 30 feet can use its reaction to teleport to an unoccupied space within five feet of that creature and take all of the damage instead. So when I read this, something that immediately usually comes to my mind when I think about this feature is that nobody likes to take damage, ever. Not even the tanks. And I know that as a cleric, I tend to make myself a a roving block of heavy plate armor and have a high AC so that I never take damage and I can spend my time taking care of the party. So for me, there's not really an upside for the person that teleports um, other than the fact that maybe the squishy person that they're protecting won't take any damage, but someone is still taking the full brunt of the damage to tweak it. Maybe if I could, I would instead have that the teleportation still happens and the damage still gets taken, but instead, or not the damage gets taken, but instead the attack roll actually goes against the teleported creature's AC, possibly causing the attack to miss. That could be too much, but diverting the damage to somebody else also seems like a bit much when you think about the full amount of damage. This is certainly very useful in combat, and my brain is just, my gears are turning right now. I'm wondering if there's any other tactical uses of this, you know, to get beyond a wall that you couldn't get past or to get across the gap or you know what if you know a protected person is in a jail cell and your cleric is on the other side and you purposely try to damage your cleric and just so he can teleport out of the jail cell i don't know oh now <laughs> now that is really interesting i'm wondering what the limits of this thing are maybe it's the dm's discretion but this seems like there could be a lot of really interesting creative uses for this protective bond yeah, I honestly didn't think about that. That would be really cool. Because, yeah, as, I, as I'm looking at it here, it doesn't say specifically this has to be combat damage. It just says when it's about to take damage. So it could be you could try to try to hurt your ally just to help that bonded player, you know, teleport to someplace that they <laughs> couldn't otherwise get to. Yeah, I, I roll to kick my friend in the shin. <laughs> Do one point of bludgeoning damage. Don't worry, buddy. We're going to break you out. Super easy. Yeah. <laughs> and so moving into the level eight, which is again, which could be replaced. This is potent spellcasting. You know, add your wizmod to the damage for any cleric cantrip that you cast. 
Not a unique feature, you see it with really any spellcasting heavy subclass. Take it or leave it with the optional Blessed Strikes feature. I don't really have too much to say because this is not anything new. Um, but so the third and final iteration of this bond is called Expansive Bond. So when a creature is affected by the emboldening or protective bond feature, the range is increased to 60 feet. And if they use your, their reaction to take the damage for another creature, they have resistance to that damage. So immediately, doubling the distance definitely makes this way more formidable. Being able to cast a wide net of allies that are all under this uh, protective feature, it makes it so that rangers or other long-range spellcasters can freely stay in the back lines where they might like to be and still sling their spells and be under the protection of this uh, protective bond where they could, you know, have their damage taken by somebody else. And I like that this builds off of the level one feature. The continuity of features and building into this one feels really nice. Unlike the order feature, this feels like a cherry on top of, all right, you've built this magic that is based on creating bonds between people. Now they can teleport and try to save each other. And now it is a 60 foot range and you have resistance to that damage. So I think that's, it feels like a really good payoff. Like, yep, I am now a 17th level cleric of the peace domain. I can do the max amount with my magic. Yeah, with this cap on the top, it really feels like if you've ever felt uh, as a cleric, like you just weren't doing enough to support the party and keep everybody alive, this seems like the domain for you. Yep. And I will say again, for this level 17 feature, I think that the whole taking damage thing should be against their AC, and then the level 17 payoff would be that even if they do take damage from it, the damage is halved. That way they're throwing themselves into the damage on behalf of more vulnerable characters. They can still get a high level upside of having some protection. But that could be me and my precious clerics that I'm trying to protect from any sort of <laughs> negative downsides. Still, it feels like a really good cap to this, um, this specific domain. Yeah, overall, this domain is well-designed and it has a fully rounded out and fleshed out concept, creating bonds between teammates and then not only granting bonuses to them, but allowing them to think tactically to support each other can offer some really wonderful in-combat roleplay moments, which, let's be honest, don't often happen when you're just trying to stay alive. Uh, sometimes your RP can fall to the wayside when you are just trying to stay alive or kill the dragon that is bearing down on you. Yeah, definitely. The only thing that sticks out to me is just the name. Nothing about this screams peace to me. Maybe like a bond domain or something like that. I know this is semantics and basically not really anything, but it just peace to me. I, I just always think of like zero fighting, like no sort of aggression when you can use all of this really aggressively. Um, you know, it's all about forging relationships and trying to tie teammates and people together. Something along those lines about bonds or, I don't know, something. Yeah, I could, I could certainly see that. Yeah. So, taking basically the opposite of peace and warmth and I think about sunlight, we are now turning to the dark side. Finally, we can talk about the religious goth subclass that I've always wanted to play and I didn't know until now, the Twilight Domain. 
Twilight Domain clerics are about teaching that there is comfort in the darkness and not just terror. They seek out to use the darkness and nighttime to provide protection to their allies, as well as being a night terror to their enemies. So kicking things off with their level two channel divinity feature, it is called Twilight Sanctuary. So as an action, you create a 30-foot sphere of dim light centered on you. And if a creature, including you, ends its turn in that sphere, you can grant one of these effects. Either temporary hit points that are granted to them equal to 1d6 plus your cleric level, or you can end a charmed or frightened effect on it. And this, I think, is a really cool feature that will be used every single fight by Twilight Domain clerics. Not really that often do you have a channel divinity feature that sees play every combat. Um, and I think that this is a cool exception to the rule of, or not a rule, but just a trend that you see of not using your channel divinity feature every combat. Immediately having something up that is going to benefit every single time you walk by a player is great. That's really neat. And it also includes yourself too. So you are... You know, similar to the the peace domain uh, cleric, you're this w with this specific sanctuary, the twilight sanctuary. You're this moving um, sphere of restorative hit points, restorative energy, including yourself. Yeah, yeah, and it is um, not only restoring energy, but also you're using you're essentially capable of casting a spell without casting a spell. Um, being able to end charmed or frightened effects is so useful. I can't tell you how many times. I've been in a fight that has been completely derailed for my character because I've been affected by a charm or a frighten. Actually, I think like three or four weeks ago when we were playing D&D &D in my, my first session of the day, um, we were fighting a royal griffin and my character has a low wisdom score and he was frightened the entire fight. He didn't get one point of damage because he could not break out of his, his frightened effect. Oh, that's so annoying. This would be, this would have been so useful then. If I'd only have known that in the future we could have had this, I would have let my DM know. <laughs> and, you know, spoiler alert, this feature is going to build off of itself in later features that I will be discussing. So look out for that. I'm really excited to talk about this. Um, so stepping back one level to see what you get at first level, it is called Eyes of Night, and you also get a feature called Vigilant Blessing. So Eyes of Night, you have dark vision up to a range of 300 feet and, as an wow. action, you can share this dark vision with a number of creatures equal to your wisdom modifier for one hour. And once per long rest, you can do this, and you can expend a spell slot to, to do it again. With Vigilant Blessing, as an action, you may give a creature advantage on their next initiative roll, and only one creature at a time. So, let's, let's just talk about dark vision up to 300 feet. That's crazy. I think this is going to make a lot of... Uh, dungeon design, dungeon planning, or uh, any 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 chamber or series of rooms where darkness is a key component and the element of surprise is something in the, the DM's back pocket. I think they're going to th really think about how they design rooms and dungeons um, if there's going to be a Twilight Domain cleric in the party. Um, because being able to see for 300 feet in darkness, multiple people, potentially ruins that surprise element. Um, though it is really cool, and I, I do like the idea of, uh, you know, this particular cleric being able to see for 300 feet. I think that, you know, a lot of really cool things start to happen when you can see everything. 
Oh, yeah. That is an American football field length away. Goalpost <laughs> to goalpost, Twilight clerics can see what you're doing in complete darkness. And it's a really nice feature because obviously all of the benefits of having dark vision is great. Um, and now you don't have to worry about choosing a race that has dark vision and potentially loading yourself. Um, mm-hmm. I know that as a player, I don't like having to deal with darkness. And I generally just pick races with dark vision because I don't like having to deal with it. I hate it. I really, I don't want to cast light. I don't ever want to have to take that because I don't want to have to cast it. Or for that matter, carry a torch. Or carry a damn torch. Yeah. And with their Vigilant Blessing, being able to grant advantage to another creature, including yourself, is, you know, useful as well. Combined with the Barbarian feature that already grants advantage to themselves, um, you can offer a helping hand to your party members with, you know, say, low dex, or give yourself a boost if your clerics have a negative dex mod like mine often do. I know the one that I'm playing in your game currently has a negative one to their initiative. Oh boy. Yeah. So, channeling the channel divinity into the sixth level feature, it is called Steps of Night. Um, So, as a bonus action in dim light or darkness, you may grant yourself a flying speed equal to your walking speed for one minute. And you can do this a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus per long rest. So, a flying cleric. What could get more religious than a flying cleric? A flying cleric with dark vision up to 300 feet. Yes, exactly. And, you know, unless you're a flying race or benefiting from another party member's spell, clerics of this level don't often get to fly, ever. Which, you know, makes this feature really unique. Unique to just this subclass. And I think that's awesome. When wizards have created a subclass that is so specific that it is giving things that aren't often seen to that class and it is unique and you know i think it's pretty cool and if you have noticed the darkness theme in the subclass um you will pick up on the fact that if your twilight sanctuary is active you will already be encased in dim light allowing you to gain access to the flying speed at any time of day so it doesn't need to be nighttime or evening um, for the dim light to happen. Uh, When you use your channel divinity, you are in this uh, 30-foot sphere of dim light. Interesting. So you could just have that around you. You could just do it in the middle of the day then. Yep. And so you can really see how this builds off of the channel divinity feature. And it feels like thematically you're getting more and more powerful. When your features build off of each other, I think that this can really offer some unique and fun roleplay moments from the DM uh, to, you know, show you how you gain access to that information. Does the DM speak through, you know, does the god speak through the DM to your character? Do they tell you that you can do this now? Do you activate your Twilight Shroud once and then you sprout mystical Twilight Gossamer wings? Like, what happens when you finally learn this information? You know, I think being able to have magic that builds off of itself and feel like it's coming to a head or a crescendo being able to build and it feels stuff like this makes you feel like you're getting more powerful and it's a it's a thematic payoff yeah they all kind of tie into each other and have some sort of relationship like you said building on each other yeah and you know coming to the the level eight feature divine strike again we've seen it before basically 1d8 radiant damage bumps up to 2d8 level 14 uh again 
It's a cut and dry cleric feature. Radiant damage does make sense, like celestial radiance or perhaps like moonlight radiance, something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes sense. And so the final and most wonderful feature from the Twilight Clerics, it is called the Twilight Shroud. At level 17, you and your allies now have half cover while in the sphere of your Twilight Sanctuary. So, initially, I will say that having this feature for being level 17 can feel a little underwhelming since half cover is something that can be granted by architecture or stepping behind a tree, perhaps. Having said that, combine that with a flying speed, you become a mobile beacon of twilight that can grant half cover in a 30-foot radius sphere to anybody and choose to either end a Frighten or Charmed effect or give them temporary HP without any sort of action or concentration on your part at all. Right, and just having this roaming sphere of plus two AC for your whole party. Yeah. Seems pretty good. Yeah. Much like the Peace Domain, each of these features build upon each other and exemplifies the idea that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You know, when you look at these features individually, these features can seem a little fragmented, but when used synergistically, you become an insanely powerful ally. Indeed, indeed. This one is a really good end cap to this, um, this domain as well. Absolutely. You know, the goth cleric is thematically probably one of my most favorite subclasses for cleric that's been created thus far. I love love, love the idea that some clerics truly worship the night and the moon and everything that darkness has to offer. And I I think that, you know, features in this subclass enhance the idea that darkness really isn't what it's cracked up to be. A cleric of twilight can be a calming and supportive teammate that provides health and sanctuary, but can also be a night terror Valkyrie that rockets into battle to fight alongside their strongest allies. All right, so that is everything that I have uh, regarding clerics. I will stop gushing, and I will let you get into druids. I know that you were really excited about some of this druid stuff uh, that they have. Yeah, druid has some really exciting things. We actually have three new druid circles in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. We've got the Circle of Spores, the Circle of Wildfire, and my personal favorite, the Circle of Stars. And before we get into those, we do have some optional druid class features once again please consult with your dm to make sure that they are on board with these new things these are not separate uh circles per se they are just additional things to add uh, as a whole to the druid class that are optional so please consult with your dm make sure that they want to add these first um first up we have the additional expanded druid spell list and uh, a lot of these are in the player's handbook but the things that you would kind of expect to be added to druids things like Uh, Protection from Evil and Good, and Continual Flame, uh, Elemental Weapon, Cone of Cold, all those elemental type of spells, it just makes sense for druids to have. Um, But then the three that I want to talk about um, are the summon spells, and we touched a little bit uh, about these with the clerics, um, but druids have uh, three. There are are nine total summon spells in Tasha's. Um, Druids, with this expanded list, have access to three of them. Um, We have Summon Beast, Summon Fey, and Summon Elemental, which are 2nd level, 3rd level, and 4th level spells, respectively. And what I like about these is, like we talked about before, they have a consistent, uh, reliable 
Uh, stat block for players are a lot easier for DMs to deal with as opposed to the conjure spells. Um, and there's, they're pretty good as, as far as I'm concerned. They're pretty good uh, stat blocks. Just to give an example, the Summon Fey, the third level summon spell. Um, you get to, when you summon it, you get to choose the mood and it could be fuming or mirthful or tricksy. And each one of those things has, uh, you know, a neat effect on it. Fuming has, they have an advantage on the next attack roll it makes before the end of its turn. Um, mirthful, they can basically force a creature to make a, uh, a wisdom save. Uh, and if they, you know, if they fail it, they are, are charmed uh, for the next minute. Um, Trixie, they get to fill a five foot cube within five feet of it, uh, with magical darkness, you know, so all these different things. And most of these summons are kind of like this. You get to choose a different option, um, for, for what it's going to be, but it's just a, a nice consistent set of stats. Um, so that's, I guess that's all I'll say about the summon spells, but there is something kind of, I'm not sure how to take it. It's, it's interesting. It's unique. It's, I have an opinion on it, but they have a strange, component requirement. And if you know anything about spell casting, um, for the most part, components are done through component pouches or spell casting focuses, unless the thing has a specific gold requirement. And these all have sort of odd component requirements. For example, the Summon Fey, um, you need a gilded flower worth at least 300 gold pieces. And the uh, Summon Beast um, has, a, has a strange component requirement too. You need a uh, a feather, a tuft of fur, and a fishtail inside a gilded acorn worth at least 200 gold pieces. And all those are kind of strange. They're not just things you go to the general store when you're picking up, you know, extra 50 feet of hemp and rope and, a, um, you know, a sack of ball bearings. You don't just get it at the, the general goods store. These are sort of weird things. And I think the idea is your druid's going to have to go on some sort of little side quest to find this strange item Um you know, so, so it's, you kind of unlock the spell as you go and find this strange component. The spell doesn't consume it, so once you have it, you have it. I, I don't know how I feel about it. It's kind of cool, um, but the summon spells I do prefer over the conjure spells. I really like the direction that Tasha is going with these. Um, so that's enough on that. Next up for the optional Druid class features is the second level feature called Wild Companion. And very simply, this just lets you spend one of your uses of Wild Shape um, to cast the Find Familiar spell without using material components. Um, what's nice about this is um, I, I, I've so long wanted to have this in Druid. It makes a lot of sense. I've wanted to have some sort of beast familiar that I can have at my side all the time, even if I'm not a ranger. You know, so I'm really glad they added this to Druid. Um, the familiar is a fey instead of a beast, and it does last a number of hours equal to half your Druid level, which is exactly how Wild Shape works. Um, but overall, I'm really, really happy that they put this into Druid. It's just something that, to me, makes sense. Yeah, you'd think that as a Druid, you'd be able to speak with animals and commune with nature, and they would feel more drawn to you. So I think that it makes sense to be able to conjure this you know, being of nature to be by your side. Yeah, exactly. If you're a Druid, why shouldn't you be able to be a Disney princess and call a raven to come sit on your shoulder for you know an hour? Exactly. Um, so the last of the optional features is, once again, the cantrip versatility at 4th level. Um, we've talked enough about that. Anytime you, after 4th level, uh, reach a level that lets you improve your ability score, you can just swap out a druid cantrip for a different one. Really versatile, not much more to say on it, um, but those are the optional class features. Um, now moving into the circles, um, what we're going to see is a common theme 
for for the three different circles, and I think this is how Tasha's is going to be generally, is it takes the thing that is sort of central to that class and asks you to use it in a completely different way. And for Druid, if you've played the class before, you know it's all about those uses of wild shape. And each of these circles asks you to use wild shape in a different way. Um, and just as a reminder, Druids get two uses of wild shape per any rest, that's short rest or long rest. So keep that in mind as we go through these circles. So first up, we're going to look at the Circle of Spores. This is a really interesting circle, and it's all about that idea of finding beauty in decay and that appreciation for the cycle of life and death, that uh, transformation of mold and spores into this new, strange, beautiful life, um, where this circle would, you know, have a... Have a revolt and a detest for the undead that seeks to halt that cycle and kind of keep it in sort of sort of stasis it really appreciates that continual cycle um life and death being opposite sides of the coin um so at level two we get our circle spells and uh these are all things that are in the player's handbook we won't go through them in detail but they're things like chill touch blindness deafness um blight cloud kill contagion animate dead um, spells that make sense for the class. Um, as a reminder, circle spells for druids, you get them at specific levels. Um, you always have them prepared, and they don't count against the number of spells that you can prepare each day. That's how circle spells work. Um, the other, the other uh, couple features that we get with the circle of spores at second level is the first one called Halo of Spores. This is a really neat feature, and the, the rest of the features kind of work in conjunction with this second level feature. What Halo of Spores does is you uh, surround yourself with this invisible necrotic spores that, that uh, are harmless until you unleash them on a creature nearby. And uh, whenever a creature uh, moves within 10 feet of you or starts a turn within 10 feet of you, you can use your reaction to deal 1d4 necrotic damage unless they make a constitution save versus your spell save DC. Um, this damage does scale at 6th, 10th, and 14th level um, to be a d6, d8, and d10 respectively. Um, and this is just a feature. You don't have to spend a usage of wild shape to do this. This is just something that the circle gets at second level. Next up at second level, we have a thing called symbiotic, symbiotic entity. And here's where we can use our wild shape. As an action, you spend usage of wild shape and you awaken these spores. And it does this effect where you get a couple different things, including uh, four temporary hit points for each level of druid that you are. Um, some other things. The effect is going to last... 10 minutes or until that temp HP is used up or you use uh, a usage of wild shape. So in addition to the temporary hit points with the symbiotic entity, um, you get to roll the damage die for your halo of spores a second time and your melee weapon attacks deal an extra 1d6 necrotic damage on top of whatever it's already doing. So since, since this is an action and lasts 10 minutes, I think this is the kind of thing that you probably want to use when you're going into a situation where you anticipate there's going to be some combat, right? You don't want to be doing this as your single action on your turn after combat's already started. It's going to last a while, and you probably want to get it active before going into combat. Um, but what, like I mentioned before, as, as this is an additional necrotic damage, um, just think about like preparing for combat and, you know, you... Uh, enable your symbiotic entity, and you also cast Shillelagh, so you get that extra staff damage. So, you know, at, at second level, thinking, you know, thinking about dealing, 
you know, 1d8 plus 2 or 1d8 plus 3 because of Shillelagh, and you get an additional d6 necrotic on top of that just with your staff, um, I think is pretty good. Yeah, that does seem like really, really nice early game stuff because, admittedly, a lot of campaigns peter out or they don't make it unless they're really serious and they want to make it all the way to the end. So I think this is a good early on feature. You know, I was going to say something about about the the intensity of the damage at higher levels, but I think, you know, again, with campaigns not reaching past a certain level, I think this is a really nice feature for the spores to have a self-preservation kind of effect. They're, they're really protecting their druid from damage and being able to deal that damage back, I think is really, really nice, especially at low level. Yeah, and this circle kind of asks you to be more in the middle of combat, I think, than anything. Um, rather than being a long-range druid that summons a pack of wolves to go attack for you or to, you know, I want to attack with my bow from long range. You know, this one kind of asks you to be in the middle of things. Mm -hmm. um, and it gives, gives you good reason to, to do it, too. Um, so continuing on, at level 6, we have the feature called Fungal Infestation. And this one's really neat, and I think this is exactly what I think about when I think about a druid that is all about uh, spores and mold and that... Um, that cycle of life and death. And with this one, you actually use those spores to animate dead creatures. So how it works is whenever a, a beast or a humanoid that has to be smaller or medium-sized, whenever it dies within 10 feet of you, you can use your reaction to animate it. Those spores uh, infest that recently dead creature and you make it stand up with one hit point you get to use the zombie stat blocks going to fight for you um it's up and going for an hour or until it dies um but if, if you've not taken a look at the zombie stat block just to give a quick refresh um it's got up to 22 hit points it's got some pretty neat attacks but i think the thing that does it for me is this feature on zombies called undead fortitude which uh, if it's going to die, it makes a con save. Uh, DC is 5 plus the damage it takes. And if it saves, it doesn't die. It just goes back to one hit point instead. So this is potentially using those spores to reanimate a dead thing that might be a little tricky to kill. Wow. Now that is some cool, like, almost dark-sided druid things. You think about, you know, raising the dead. You think about necromancy. You think about... Um, you know, bringing this undead creature. It doesn't have to be, but I think it's a cool flavor of druids of, like, your time is not up yet. Like, I still need to use your matter, your your organic body matter. I am sending my spores to reanimate your body to fight for me. That could even be, you know, especially thinking about, I'm going to use your ally against you. Yeah, and I, I really like this. Um, like I said, this is exactly the kind of thing that I think about when... I'm envisioning a, a, a druid that's all about death and decay and spores and mold and funguses. Mm-hmm. For sure. So, and the last thing to say on this one, you get to use this feature a number of times equal to your wisdom modifier, and you get those back after a long rest. So, um, all in all, I think this is a really cool, really powerful feature at 6th level. Very much so. Uh, next up at level 10, we have the feature called Spreading Spores. And this is something that you use when that second level symbiotic entity is active. As a bonus action, um, you place your halo of spores up to 30 feet away. Um, the way that it reads is that it's a second halo of spores, but you can't use your normal one. 
the normal halo of spores reaction while it's active. So effectively, it's just moving that halo of spores up to 30 feet away, 30 feet away. And you can't, uh, you can only have one spreading spores active at a time. But I think the ability to move this uh, cloud of spores around the battlefield and have it deal damage, um, it, it kind of makes what ordinarily this circle would be a a melee kind of a fighter get in the mix of things. It lets you maybe take a little bit more backseat and use your halo of spores as, as sort of a ranged attack. Wow. That was pretty cool. Yeah. And, you know, at 10th level, your um, necrotic damage from the halo of spores uh, is going to be a D8. So it may not be the best thing, but you know it, it is a uh, it is a a cloud of spores that's dealing this damage. So any any creature within that where it starts a turn there is taking this damage, and that's effectively a spell. That's a bonus action, yeah. A bonus action spell doesn't take any spell slots, and narratively it's compounding on your your spores. Yeah, exactly. Like we've seen before in the the cleric, we're taking this early feature and building on it and at later levels making it stronger do more cool things mm -hmm. so enough on that lastly we have the 14th level feature called fungal body and uh, we've seen things like this before in other classes i think where at least druids in general kind of have this uh, idea of after a certain point in their life they've sort of transcended and their body gets transformed um with this, with Fungal Body at level 14, the spores themselves have uh, infested and transformed your body over time. You get two benefits. You can no longer be frightened, blinded, deafened, or poisoned. Pretty neat. The other thing, which I think is a lot more, a lot stronger, is um, critical hits against you now count as normal rolls. Unless, obviously, you're incapacitated. Wow. So you're, the spores in your body are effectively acting as adamantine armor <laughs> yeah basically yeah and not being able to be blinded deafened or frightened or poisoned um that's nuts 14th yeah. level like i mean 14th level y you will be fighting things that already have like a frightening aura or like a frightening presence that sort of thing and being able to be your i, I just think about the comedic effect of a a gnome druid spore druid facing down a dragon and saying i'm not scared of you yeah exactly right <laughs> you literally you cannot scare me cannot be frightened or deaf and poisoned or blinded this little yeah you're right this little tiny gnome druid that's just not scared not scared a bit i'm not scared because i'm on shrooms because i'm on shrooms you can't scare me the amount of drugs pumping through my body at any given moment I can't be scared of you. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, uh, enough for the Circle of Spores. Let's continue on. Uh, next up, we have the Circle of Wildfire. Um, this circle is all about that idea that destruction is the precursor to creation. If you think about uh, wildfire destroying a forest before it can be regrown with new life. With this circle, you form a bond with this primal elemental spirit of fire, um, which allows you to channel the destructive and creative power that fire has to offer. So at level two, we have our circle spells, um, which again, these are all things that make sense. They're all in the player's handbook. They're things like burning hands, flaming sphere. Um, we have uh, revivify, aura of life, flame strike, cure wounds. The thing that I'm 
I'm sort of glad they didn't include on this list because I think it is so iconic to Wizards is the Fireball spell. I can see how some people might be upset that a Wildfire Druid doesn't get to cast Fireball. But again, like I said, I think Fireball is so iconic to Wizards that it kind of needs to stay there. Yeah, I, I've noticed through different social medias, I've seen people's opinions about it, and I've, I've listened to them talk about how they think that Fireball should be allowed for this Wildfire Druid, and I just fundamentally have to disagree. I think that that is an iconic... Uh, wizard warlock sorcerer thing i you know fireball for me just thematically doesn't feel like it and i know it kind of doesn't make sense with this circle of wildfire but honestly it what you will explain here in a little bit i think far makes up for the fact that they do not have fireball yeah i think if you had fireball that'd be the only thing you did and there is so much more cool stuff with the circle of wildfire that i think again i'm glad they kept it with wizard um, but at level two, the other feature that we get with this class is called Summon Wildfire Spirit, which does exactly that. As an action, you spend a usage of your wild shape to summon a wildfire spirit. And we have a stat block for that. So again, it's sort of like the summon spells. It's something specific that you can rely on. Um, it's got some pretty good stats. Um, it's got an AC of 13. Um, the hit points are based on your druid level. Um, it's got some conditional immunities. And it's got... Two pretty neat attacks. Although, also, by the way, this does have 30 feet of flying. Um, but it's got some a couple cool attacks. One is uh, Flame Seed. It's a ranged attack. Um, so I'm, I'm imagining you know, this, this Wildfire Spirit just chucking this uh, moat of fire at a, at a target, at a, at a range. Uh, the other thing that it can do is called Fiery Teleportation. And the way that this works is the spirit in each willing creature of your choice within five feet teleport up to 15 feet to an unoccupied space you can see um, and then each creature within five space of five feet of the space that it just left has to make a deck save and if they fail they take 1d6 fire damage plus your proficiency bonus in damage um, so I, I'm, I'm thinking that's kind of a cool idea of you and this spirit and maybe some other creatures move into a new space and this explosion of fire happening um, in its wake and just leaving this uh, this fire damage, um, which this also does, I forgot to mention, when you summon it, it also uh, kind of does the same thing. Uh, when it summoned, creatures need to make a, uh, within 10 feet, have to make a deck save or else they take 2d6 fire damage. Wow. So it's just kind of this idea of this, this spirit exploding onto the combat field. Yeah, it's almost like um, it's it's exploding onto the combat field, just like you said. And then also, it's kind of like a thunder step, almost being able to teleport and do damage. It's repositioning and damage, and it's not even your action; it's the action of the wildfire spirit. Yeah, exactly. So pretty good, and to be able to do this at second level, um, just with the usage of your wild shape, means you're going to get it uh, twice per short or long rest. So potentially, you know, we're doing it multiple times per day, two, three, four times per day, depending on how many short rests you take. Um, yeah, depending on how uh, how upset your DM is at the party and how many encounters you have throughout the day. <laughs> right, right. And like the other spirits, uh, the other summons, this lasts for up to an hour uh, or until it, you know, obviously dies. Um, so building on that, at level six, we have the enhanced bond. And this increases that bond that you have to this elemental fire spirit. And what happens is 
whenever you cast a spell that deals damage or restores hit points, you can add a D8 to one of those rolls. Additionally, spells that have a target other than self can now originate from the spirit. So it gives you a little bit more flexibility and range with with your with your uh, spells, depending on you know how you position that elemental fire spirit. Hmm, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's nothing that's overwhelming or nothing that's real flashy, but uh, it does give you some a little bit more power, a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more utility in combat. Um, however. Yeah. Uh, this circle really gets cool at uh, level 10, where we get to the feature called Cauterizing Flames. And this allows you to turn death, turn creatures that have just died into these flames that can either heal or, or uh, deal damage. Kind of like that idea when we first talked about the circle where wildfire, a force burning down so that it can create new life. And how this works is... Whenever a small or large creature dies within uh, a small or larger creature dies within 30 feet of you or your wildfire spirit, this small spectral flame springs from the creature's space for up to a minute. And what happens is, whenever a creature you can see enters that space, um, you can use your reaction to extinguish that flame and either heal or deal fire damage. Which that that restorative healing or the fire damage is 2d10 plus your wisdom modifier. And you get to use this reaction, this reaction that allows you to um, extinguish these flames when something dies. You can do that a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, which you get back after a long rest. So to note, whenever something dies, it creates a flame. You use a reaction. That reaction extinguishes the flame. So it's, it's one flame per dead thing. However, th this does potentially turn... Uh, a combat with multiple small things into a either very deadly encounter for your enemies or one that really benefits your your own party. Yeah, I mean, at max, that's 25 hit points restored on a reaction. On a reaction, just because something died. Yeah, just because something died. And it says, like, whenever a small or larger creature dies within 30 feet of you or the wildfire spirit... So, you know, on the battlefield, if it just, if those things die, those, those fires just linger there. And oh, yeah. And for, I mean, even for one minute, like, if you, I'm thinking about post-battle, there are just kind of flames flitting about the battlefield, and you don't have to worry about casting Cure Wounds. All of your allies can just run around and, yep, I will take that healing, I will take that healing. Just go bathe yourself in the flames, friends. I have walked through fire. Indeed. <laughs> exactly. Literally. So, moving on, our last feature for the Circle of Wildfire is at level 14, and it is called Blazing Revival. Once per long rest, if your spirit is within 120 feet of you, and you fall to zero hit points, you instead can cause the spirit to drop to zero hit points, and you regain half your hit points. Uh, you can do this once per long rest. Um, I've seen magical items that do effects similar but not even close to as good as this because you're getting half of your hit points which at level 14 is going to be quite a bit so not only do you not die but you get half of your hit points back instead of going to zero hit points much like a a phoenix rising from the ashes you are reborn anew again once per long rest oh man 
That's I I cannot get over the fact that you get half of your hit points back. Like that is insane. You basically have a pool of all and a half of your hit points to work with because generally what is it? It's, you said the spirit is within 120 feet of you. Yeah. You're really not going to let your spirit get beyond that. So you basically always have that pool and a half. That's oh, that's so useful. And think about what an enemy would have to do to get around this. They would need to kill your wildfire spirit so you don't have access to it. And they need to kill it again because you can just summon your wildfire spirit with a usage of wild shape on your next turn. Yep. So it makes a level 14 circle of wildfire druid kind of hard to kill. Yeah, which is really, really nice, especially when you have... I wouldn't say that druids are squishy. I will say that they can be. Um, but even so, having a semi-squishy spellcaster that dumps out the damage, um, having them pretty hard to kill is very formidable. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. This one's going to be very exciting to play, especially being able to summon that spirit at second level. It's going to be a lot of fun. I, You know me. Um, I love anything that has an animal companion. Being able to have... <laughs> Being able to have a friend that can't walk away from you, you love to see it. Your friend in fire. Okay, well, that about does it for the Circle of Wildfire. Last up is my favorite, simply because I love how much RP is built into it, and that is the Circle of Stars. This one's very cool. It draws on that power of starlight, that tracking of constellations and their lore and understanding and unlocking of the secrets and mysteries of the stars. And what we get to do with the Circle of Stars druid at level two, we have two new features. Uh, the first one is called Star Map. You literally create a star map, and it lets you do a couple different things. Um, the book actually even has a chart that you can roll on, a table to roll on, uh, as to what sort of form that this star map can take. Um, you could really make it whatever you wanted to, but just to give an example, um, we have things like glass discs that depict constellations or uh, a scroll with covered in depictions of constellations. Or maybe it is a crystal that projects starry patterns whenever um, you place it before a light. Um, just a lot of really cool RP possibilities. But that's not all. There's a lot of things that it can do as well. So first of all, you could use it as a spellcasting focus. Um, you know the guidance cantrip, and you also... Uh, have Guiding Bolt always prepared, and you get to cast it without using a spell slot. Spell slot equal to a number of times, um, a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, which you get those uses back after a long rest. So already, just always having guidance and always being able to cast Guiding Bolt in combat, um, already pretty nice. I got to play test this last Sunday, and uh, that was kind of my go-to when I wasn't sure what I was going to do in combat. Well, let's just cast Guiding Bolt because I can. Yeah, I mean, Guiding Bolt is a really, really good spell. And you said you get this, yeah, at, at, at level second two. level. So being able to have that there, Guiding Bolt is already a first level spell. And being able to use it, you know, two times, because you have your proficiency bonus is plus two, that's two extra spell slots, essentially, for Guiding Bolt. Oh, yeah. And you only have three as a druid starting at second level. So getting yeah, being able to have additional things to do in combat without using a spell slot, um, it's pretty nice. And we're going to see that um, with later features in this circle, we're going to refer back to that star map. More as an RP thing, I don't the, the star map itself 
doesn't get more powerful, but you are referring back to it with these new features, which we'll see later on. The other feature that we get level two, and this is the one that I think the class is really centralized around, is called Starry Form. Um, and like we said before, we're going to be using these instances of wild shape to do something different and go into a different form that's not uh, an animal form. So as a bonus action, you expend one of those usages of wild shape and you create one of three constellations on your body. And what happens, your body begins to glow uh, with this, uh, this vivid starlight, which emits uh, bright light up to 10 feet, dim light up to an additional 10 feet. Um, form lasts for 10 minutes. Your joints begin to glimmer like stars and these glowing lines connect them like a star chart on your body itself. And you choose one of three forms, one of three constellations that appear on your body. We have the archer, the chalice, and the dragon. And each one of these does something different. If you choose the archer form as a bonus action, and also when you activate this form, you get to uh, hurl a luminous arrow at a target, like a ranged spell attack, range 60 feet, and on hit, it does uh, 1d8 plus your wisdom mod in radiant damage. Um, so just to remind you, in case you missed it, this is a bonus action. So you can uh, bonus action starry form into the archer, heal uh, a radiant luminous starry arrow for some damage, and then take an action. It could be a spell attack, it could be an actual attack, a physical melee attack or ranged attack. It's just a, another attack that you get to do in combat. Wow. Yeah, and in playtesting, I went into this one all the time because it's so cool. Uh, the yeah, second form. I, oh, I know. I was just gonna say that um, being able to do that, like you know, even as a second level spellcaster, you want to feel like even your spells have some oomph to them. I know no player likes to sit in those first couple levels for a little while because you feel a little bit powerless when you know you may have played more stronger characters or things like that. Being able to play that constellation and just kind of throw out some real solid damage it, it makes you feel important and feel good as a as a caster to do that oh absolutely and as someone that really loves rp it was so satisfying to describe this happening for the first time in front of my party oh that's that is the chef's kiss moment oh, of yeah. describing your magic in front of everybody else oh yeah but wait there's more that was the first of three forms. The second we have is the Chalice. What this does, whenever you cast a spell that restores hit points, you or another creature within 30 feet of you can regain uh, a D8 plus your Wisdom modifier at hit points. So this is the counterpart to the Archer that does damage for a D8 plus Wisdom mod. This is restoring hit points for a D8 plus Wisdom mod. Oh, good. That's nice. It's, yeah. the, it's the opposite. Yeah, so uh, kind of self-explanatory. Pretty good, pretty useful. Um, the third um, is the dragon form. And what this does, whenever you make um, an intelligence or wisdom check or have to make a constitution save to maintain concentration, you get to treat a nine or lower on the roll as a 10. So we've seen this effect in other classes. I know that rogues have that, um, I think it's an 11th level feature, reliable talent, I think is what it's called, where they get to just treat all rolls as uh, that are nine or lower as a 20 or as a 10. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to do this in Druid on things that you're going to be doing anyways, as a Druid, you're probably doing things that rely on your intelligence and wisdom because those are typically your highest 
abilities um, or having to make a constitution save because you've got a lot of concentration spells. Knowing that you're going to be putting yourself in those situations and putting yourself into dragon form in advance can make or break the, the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even especially like out of combat, I just I think about um, intelligence or wisdom. You know, you have nature checks, uh, history checks, survival checks, things like that. I mean, I know you are expanding it, expanding a use of your wild shape, but being able to kind of be flooded with this intense knowledge to draw upon that celestial knowledge to, you know, make those checks to have some really nice outcomes for your party. Yeah, definitely. If, if it was a crucial role and you knew that it was going to be really important to do well in it, yeah, you might want to, might be worth spending a usage of wild shape, especially since you get your usage of wild shape back after a short rest. Um, so I think if this was the only option, I think this would be kind of a disappointing feature, but having these three different starry forms that you transform into gives it a lot of flexibility, especially at level two. Um, so moving along, we're going to build on the star map, like we said. We've got the level six feature called Cosmic Omen. And what this does is after a long rest, you consult your star map and you gain information about the future. You get an omen and the, an omen is a specific outcome. What happens, you roll a die and it doesn't matter what, what kind of die it is, as long as an even number of die and um, you get a special reaction until you finish a long rest. Um, so what happens is if you roll an even on that dice roll at the, at the uh, start of your day after the long rest, you have the wheel omen, W-E-A-L. And whenever a creature you can see within 30 feet is about to make an attack, save, or check, you can use, your, you can use that reaction to roll and add a uh, 1d6 to it. Um, the other thing, if you, if you roll a, um, an odd number on that omen roll, it's the woe, W-O-E omen and it's the same thing but you subtract the rules so even number rolls is beneficial for you and your allies odd rolls is beneficial for your enemies when you want to subtract those rolls from their their uh, attack saves or checks um, you get to use this special cosmic omen reaction a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus and you regain all those uses back after a long rest um, so to note before we, we go on this is this reaction is something you get automatically every day so if you're going to play this Keep that in mind and make sure to roll at the start of every day so you know what kind of omen you get. Yeah, and this is kind of like the like a combination of Bane and Bless. There's no concentration. Both of these spells potentially are active because you know you're using the die to decide what it is going to be, um, and it can it's all day. So you're really deciding throughout the day what you are going to be using this omen for. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the the Divination Wizard's Portent, where they have those two dice rolls uh, that they make at the beginning of the day, and they can replace other dice rolls. They can choose the important moments, just like this Cosmic Omen feature, where you're choosing the important moments to affect that with your omen. Yeah, exactly. And at level six, your proficiency bonus is plus three. So you're getting to do this. You're getting to use this reaction three times per day at level six. So uh, again, kind of building on that idea that, you know, you've got this star map that allows you to consult the heavens and look at the stars and kind of make predictions about the future. Mm -hmm. So next up at level 10, we have the feature called Twinkling Constellation. And this is improving upon that starry form that we talked about earlier. 
Um, essentially, it just makes them a bit a bit stronger. The Archer and Chalice die, which before were 1d8, now it becomes 2d8. So in Archer form, you're, you're dealing 2d8 radiant damage, and with Chalice, you're healing for 2d8. And uh, while in Dragon form, you have 20 feet of flying speed, and you can hover. Additionally, and I think this is what really makes this feature powerful, is at the start of your turn, you can just change which constellation form is active. So, whereas before, if you wanted to transform in and out of different forms, you had to spend another usage of Wild Shape. Well, now, instead, once you're already in that, at the start of your turn, you can just choose which one's active. Are you in the middle of combat and you need to heal? Well, you can just... Your body begins to twinkle, and uh, the, the lines that are connecting these stars begin to change, and now you're in Chalice form. You know, or you want to switch back to Archer. Um, it just lets you do a lot more and be a lot more flexible with which form you're in. You don't have to really think ahead and be committed to one form because you only have one use of wild shape left. It lets you just be a lot more flexible at level 10. Yeah, totally. And I mean, giving yourself a flying speed of 20 feet without any sort of action or concentration is pretty cool in and of itself. Um, doubling the amount of D8s. And like you said, being able to think critically about what situation am I in, what constellation is going to benefit me and my team the best, being able to switch between those. It's like being able to move between different wild shapes without any action. I think this is this is a really, really cool um, feature. And to be honest, honestly, I would even think this was a, I would think that this was a level 14 feature just based on the the amount of finishing it off, it feels like. Yeah, and I just want to say that I really love the thematic, <laughs> just how, how this sticks to this circle of stars. It's called Twinkling Constellation, and I'm just imagining at the start of each turn, your body is just flickering with starlight and changing into a different form, like you're looking at actual stars. I think that's really cool. Oh, yeah. Very thematically consistent and assisting in really beautiful RP moments in and out of combat. Yeah, that's probably why I love this one so much. Well, last up to cap off this class, um, we have the level 14 feature called Full of Stars. And this is kind of similar uh, along the same lines as the, uh, the feature that capped off the Circle of Spores. With level 14 Full of Stars, while in starry form, you are partially incorporeal, which gives you resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage. So you're getting that benefit from the starlight, the stars themselves, uh, sort of temporarily tr uh, transforming your body, um, allowing you to be a little more of a tank, really, and uh, be resistant to those three types of damage, bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing. I would like to note that this book does not say you are resistance to non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage. That's a good point. So even if somebody has a magical weapon, your body being partially incorporeal grants that. So uh, nothing very flashy, but it's just all around pretty powerful uh, effect at level 14. It's not an additional thing you really need to think about. It's just giving you a little bit more beef a little more bulk a little bit more heft in combat yeah exactly that I, I totally see that and uh that about does it for 
my favorite of the three new druid circles. Um, anything else that you want to uh, comment on, Britain? Any final yeah, thoughts you know, on Tasha's? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, I think it's quite obvious. You said that your favorite uh, from the druid subclass is the Circle of Stars. Uh, I hopefully I, I made it apparent that my favorite of the cleric domains is the Twilight domain. I I would like to hope that maybe you and I can find a DM that could handle us becoming the night squad where you are the circle of stars and i am the twilight domain we are roaming through the nighttime and being the being the night watch i would love that that'd be so much fun i think absolutely all right well i think that's gonna about do it for this week's show Uh, thank you everyone for stopping by and listening if you like this episode please check out our future episodes. We're going to be releasing these every Wednesday. And next week, we're going to continue this journey through Tasha's Cauldron of Everything as we discuss the fighter and monk subclasses and everything Tasha's has to offer them. This has been Discussions and Dragons. I'm Jaren. And I'm Britton. And we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>